Well, I greet each of you this morning in the name of Jesus. It has been good to be with you this morning to worship together. So it's been about 20 years now, 20 years ago, that I started looking for excuses to come to Ebenezer. So if you will allow me to reminisce a little bit here at the beginning. 20 years ago, Ira and Beulah were always here. Aunt Ruth was always here. Brother Ben was the one up here giving announcements and would always lead us in a song as he went back to his seat after announcements. Sister Doris was here making everyone smile. Brother Kelvin was the pastor. I don't remember this exactly. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think Danny's and Ivan's would have been the new families. Maybe a few of the other ones as well. I believe James and Miriam would have been about the age that Nathan and Mildred are now when I started coming here. And Brother Gerald would have been just a few years older than what I am now. At that point, we didn't know, or most of us didn't know, um, Lucas and Lynn, Darren and Katie, the Holsers, the Shirks, and a whole bunch of children and young people. So now, with all those thoughts in mind, I want to read you a verse out of Ecclesiastes that says this. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Now, I'm not very old yet, but the older I get, the cycle of life and death is becoming more and more real to me. One generation passes off the scene and another rises to take its place. One generation faithfully serving God, faithfully doing the work of the church, faithfully spreading the the, the gospel, but then they pass off the scene. And then here comes the next one. And as sobering of a reality as this is, this has been God's design from the beginning of time. And as easy as it is to get puffed up and think that maybe we're turning into something great, all we have to do is just go to another funeral and realize how frail and finite we really are. Even David, the psalmist David, the warrior David, the prophet David, the the man after God's own heart, even David, it says in Acts, that after David had served his own generation by the will of God, He fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption, even David. And that's the way God has designed it from the beginning of time. Now, with these thoughts in mind, I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 78. Psalm chapter 78, I've entitled the message this morning, A Faith Worth Following. A Faith Worth Following. I remember as a young child growing up, my dad had a good friend who was a dairy farmer. That was his occupation. But he wasn't a dairy farmer in his heart. Okay, He would always complain about the work. He would complain about low milk prices, which all dairy farmers do. He never made improvements on his farm. His farm was just kind of going to pot. He'd talk about all the things he'd rather be doing than milking cows. And I remember my dad commenting different times that the chances of this man's son taking over the farm was slim to none. 
because of the attitude that the dad had towards dairy farming. Why would Junior get excited about taking on something that dad made look so awful? Now, that's, that's just dairy farming. Who cares about that? But what about your faith? What about your Christianity? Do you have a Christianity that your children and your neighbors and your co-workers look at and say, whatever they have, I would give anything to have that. I want to give, whatever it is that they have, I want it for myself. And so the burden of this message is to call you to evaluate your faith, your Christianity, and ask yourself the question, when those looking on see my Christianity Do they see a faith that they would want for themselves? Or another question would be, is the God that you are worshiping worthy of worship? And I'll I'll elaborate on that more as we go. So Psalm 78, I want to begin by reading the first eight verses. This is a psalm of Asaph, and it says this, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. And so the writer of this psalm here has been entrusted with a story. There's a story that's been handed down to him. He's heard about it from the the prior generation. And now here's what he's going to do with this story. Verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. And so what He's saying here is is there's this story, a story of God's faithfulness. It's been handed down to us, and we are going to hand that story down to the next generation, and that generation will hand that story down to the next generation, the story of God's faithfulness. And, And then what will happen? Then we get to... Verse 6, that says this, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, declare these stories. And then the most important verse in the psalm, verse 7, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. It might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. And so the psalmist here is saying, these stories of God's faithfulness in the past need to be told to the next generation. These stories are going to be the... These stories of God's faithfulness will be the catalyst that drives the next generation to seek after God and to follow God. But isn't it interesting though... And I assume that most of you here know the the story. And, and, And the psalmist goes on to tell the story. It's the story of the children of Israel. And how God brought them out of Egypt. God brought them out of bondage. And He took them through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. We know that story. And that's the story that the psalmist tells here in this chapter. But isn't it interesting that the people that experienced this firsthand, these people who who saw the plagues in Egypt, They saw God bring them out. They saw the pillar of fire. They saw the 
or the, the, the fire and the cloud. They saw that. They saw the Red Sea part. They walked through that. They ate the manna. Their shoes didn't wear out. They saw enemy nations fall before them. The people that experienced this firsthand turned away from God. Time and again, they turned away from God. And yet in spite of this, Asaph still says that these stories of God's faithfulness is what is going to inspire future generations to follow God. And so the rest of this psalm tells the story. And it's a story, as I said, of of deliverance. A story of victory. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of the faithfulness and the power of Almighty God. And yet in spite of all this, it's a story of a people who set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. And the story that Asaph goes on to tell is a very long story. I'm not going to go through the whole thing this morning. But all through this psalm, we see the goodness of God. We see the faithfulness of God. We see the mercy of God. We see the power of God. And yet all through this psalm, we also see the selfishness and the rebellion of man. And I struggled knowing exactly how to take these It's 64 verses that tell this story here in this psalm. And how do you take 64 verses and condense it down into a message? But as I read and I studied this psalm, I realized that pretty much every verse in this story could be divided into one of three categories. The one category is the faithfulness of God. 36 verses out of these 64 verses tell about the faithfulness of God. 36 verses. 18 of these verses talk about the unfaithfulness of man. 18 verses tell about the unfaithfulness of man. And then 10 of these verses talk about God's judgment on unfaithfulness. And so we're going to look at those things this morning. We're going to start by talking about the faithfulness of God. I want to take you through these verses and show you the faithfulness of God that we see in these verses. And a little later in the message, I'm going to ask you a question. And and so you can be thinking about this now. The, The question is this. What attributes of God do you see in this story? So you'll be thinking about that so you have an answer when I when I ask you later on. But I want to go through here and just read you some of the verses that talk about the faithfulness of God. It starts in verse 12. Chapter 78, verse 12 says this. Marvelous things did He... And maybe I should just, before I read those, just say this. If you look at verses verses 9 through 11, it talks about the, the unfaithfulness of the children of Israel. But I'm going to skip those for now and go to verse 12 where it says this, Marvelous things did He, did God, in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and He made the waters to stand as in heap. In the daytime also He led them with a cloud, and all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rocks and caused water to run down like rivers. And so these are amazing miracles that God performed in the sight of the children of Israel. 
dividing the sea, bringing the water, the fire, the cloud, all these things, amazing acts that he performed. Now jump to verse 23, where it continues talking about this. It says, Though he had commanded the clouds from above, and opened the doors of heaven, and had rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them of the corn of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the heaven, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He rained flesh also upon them as dust, and feathered fowls like as the sand of the sea. And he let it fall in the midst of their camp, round about their habitation. Now jump to verse 38. This is after Israel had forsaken God time and again. But then we read this, even after they forsook Him, we read this, verse 38, But He, God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time He turned His anger away and did not stir up all His wrath. For He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. And then, in verses 43 through 51, it talks about the wrath and judgment of God that was poured out upon the Egyptians. And yet for His own people, in verse 52 it says, speaking of the faithfulness of God, verse 52, "...but made His own people to go forth like sheep, and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And He led them on safely, so that they feared not." But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to the border of his sanctuary, even to his mountain, which his right hand had purchased. He cast out the heathen also before them, and divided them an inheritance by line, and made the tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. And so that's the faithfulness of God. That's the goodness of God that we see in that story. And I told you there was 36 verses that talk about the faithfulness of God, the miracles of God, the wonders that God performed to, for His people in bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them through the wilderness, providing them with food, providing them with water, protecting them. All of these things God did. That was the faithfulness of God to the children of Israel. So how did the Israelites respond to God's faithfulness? I want to go back now and I want to look at the response of man to the faithfulness of God. And I'm not going to read all these verses, but as I went through this psalm and I looked at the people's response, I just simply made a list. Here's how they responded. Here's their actions. Here's their attitudes that they had to God's faithfulness. So I'm just going to go through and read what I wrote. In verse 8, it says, they were stubborn and rebellious. In verse 9, it says, they turned back in the day of battle. Verse 10, they kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law. Verse 11, they forgot His works and His wonders. Verse 17, they sinned against God and provoked Him. Verse 18, they tempted God. Verse 19, they spake against God. Verse 20, they doubted God. Verse 22, they believed not God and trusted not in His salvation. Verse 40, they provoked Him. And grieved him. Verse 41, they turned back, they tempted God, they limited the Holy One of Israel. Verse 42, they remembered not his hand. That was the response of these people to the, fa- <clears throat> to the faithfulness of God. 
This God that had delivered them. This God who had provided for them and protected them. This was their response to that God. And so we ask the question, why? Why would you respond to a God like this in this way? And how? How could you respond in such a rebellious way to a God who would provide for your needs in such an amazing way? To a God that is so gracious, so compassionate, so loving. Why would you respond to a God like they did? And in the midst of this rebellion, God continued to show mercy. God continued to be faithful to these people. And then we get to verse 59. I'm going to read some more. And here is where we see the the judgment of God upon the unfaithfulness of man. Verse 59, it says this, When God heard this, He was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel, so that He forsook the tabernacles of Shiloh, the tent which He had placed among men, and delivered His strength unto captivity, and His glory into the enemy's hand. He gave His people over also unto the sword, and was wroth with His inheritance. The fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given to marriage." Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. And so that's the judgment of God upon the unfaithfulness of man. But if you continue reading, God's judgment ended, and He again has mercy upon His people. So it's a beautiful account, a beautiful chapter of the faithfulness of God, and yet it's a sobering account when you look at the the response of man to this God that was so faithful to them. But now, what does all this mean to us? So I entitled the message, as I told you early, earlier, A Faith Worth Following. And I gave it that title because of the purpose of this psalm that we find in verses 6 and 7 that says that the generations to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. This psalm is a history lesson on the children of Israel and their unfaithfulness to a faithful God. But yet it's more than that. It's more than just a history lesson. And so the question that I want you to consider this morning is, what does the God look like that you are handing down to the next generation? What does that God look like? And is the God that you are worshiping worthy of worship? Is He a God that your children look at and say, yes, that's what I want for myself? Now, what do I mean when I say, is is the God that you are handing down a God worth worshiping. Well, I asked you to consider some of the attributes of God that you see in the Psalms. I'm going to open this up now and and have you name some of God's attributes that you see in this Psalm. Just call them out. The omnipotence of God. God, All-knowing, yes. Compassion. Compassion. His shepherding and guidance. Yes. He delivers. 
He delivers. Miracle worker. Mm hmm. Miracle worker. Probably could also just say omnipotent, all powerful. <clears throat> Any others? Compassionate. Compassionate, yes. Yes, that's, that's all very good. Thank you for those. I think we also see the mercy of God. We see the judgment of God. We see the jealousy of God. We see the holiness of God. Now, when you think about that list that we just made, these attributes of God, these, these characteristics of God, God being a miracle worker, God being omniscient, omniscient God being a shepherd, a deliverer, a God, a merciful God, a loving God. When you see a God like that, does that look like a God that you would want to follow? Anybody want to follow a God like that? Anyone want to serve a God like that? Would anyone here be willing to give your life for a God like that? I trust that we all are. This is a God that I think all of us would want to follow. This is a God that we would be willing to give everything to serve a God like this. But let me, let me remind you, go back again and, and remind you of the, of the people's response to a God like this. They were stubborn and rebellious. They turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law. They forgot His works and His wonders. They sinned against God. They tempted God. They spake against God. They doubted God. They limited God. They remembered not His hand. See, when we read this story of the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt, when we read the story of God so miraculously bringing them through the wilderness, we see a God that we say, I want to worship a God like that. I want that God to be my God. This merciful, compassionate, all-powerful God. I want to serve a God like that. But do you think the children of the Israelites, do you think they saw a merciful God? A compassionate God? A loving God? Is that what they saw? When their parents were speaking against God, doubting God, limiting God, tempting God, believing not God. Did, did the next generation see a God that was worth following? No. Is it any surprise that when we get to, I believe it's Judges, Joshua or Judges, where we have the verse that says that there arose a generation that knew not God, nor the wonderful things that He had done. Is there any surprise that this happened? When the response of the, of the older people, the response of the parents, the response of the grandparents was to believe not God, to speak against God, to forsake God, to limit God. Is there any, is it any surprise that the children knew not God, knew not the God of Israel? The God that the older generation handed down wasn't a God worth following. It says they turned back from Him. He wasn't a God worth obeying. It says they kept not His covenant and refused to walk in His law. The God that the older generation handed down wasn't a good God. Because it says they spake against Him. He wasn't a God that could be trusted. It says they doubted Him. 
He wasn't a faithful God. It says they believed not in Him and trusted not in His salvation. He wasn't an all-powerful God because they limited the Holy One of Israel. And so I think it's safe to say that the reason that God wasn't handed down to the next generation was because the God that was handed down wasn't a God worth following. Wasn't a God worth giving their life for. And so again, the question comes to us, what about us? What God are we handing down to the next generation? Is the God that those around us observe us following a God that is worthy of our life, worthy of our worship? Now, let me just make this clear, and I trust it is, but the God of the Bible is worthy of worship. The God of the Bible is worth following. He is worth giving our life for. But the question is, is the God that you are serving worth following? The God that you are showing your children, your neighbors, your co-workers, is He a God that they would want for themselves? I think way too many people have looked at the faith of their fathers and other professing believers and have said, if that's what Christianity is, I want nothing to do with it. If that's what it means to be a Christian, if that's what God really is, I can find something better in the world. And what a shame. Is the God that we are handing down the true God of the Bible, the God that is faithful, the God that is all-powerful, the God that is merciful, is that the God that we are handing down? As I pondered this, I jotted down several gods that we could hand down to our children. And, and, and this is more than just a child training message. It could be our co-workers, our neighbors, and all those who observe our life. These are some gods that we could hand down. It could be a theoretical God. You know, a God that we talk about, a God we discuss, a God we speculate about. But he has no practical outworkings in our life. He's just a theoretical God. Or maybe he's a a silent God. A God whom we claim to believe in, we profess faith in, and yet he has no tangible evidence in our everyday life. It could be an inherited God. You know, Dad served God, granddaddy served God, and it worked for them. And so, you know, I put on the right clothes and I say the right things. I give the right answers. I just do what they did. And that's, that's my Christianity. It's an inherited God. I'm a second generation Christian. I'm a third generation Christian, you know. And I know what we mean by that when we say that, but I don't believe in a second generation Christian. All of us here are first generation Christians if we are true disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not about dad, not about granddad, it's about my faith, about my relationship with God. But we can hand down an inherited God to those around us. Or maybe a legalistic God. You know, a God that just holds us to a strict list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this. And we can hand down a God like that to our children. And at the end of it all, He gives either a reward or a punishment. And so I'm going to try to do what He said to do and not do what He said not to do so that I receive the reward and I don't receive the punishment. And it's just a legalistic God. We can hand down a God like that. 
Or, and I wasn't quite sure how to phrase this next one, but we could hand down a loaves and fishes God. A God we come to when we have a need. A God that we expect to to just kind of fulfill our every desire. Whether it's my big toe hurting, whether it's grandma that's sick, whether it's, um, you know, whatever it is, I just come to God and I bring all my needs to God. But that's all He is. He's just a God that that supplies my needs. And that's all He is. A loaves and fishes God. And I'm sure there's other gods we could hand down as well. But I don't want to hand down a God like that to the next generation. I want to hand down the true God. The God of the Bible. The living God. A God that is alive. A personal God. A God that is real in my heart. A God that I talk to. A God that... Yes, I bring my request to a God that, yes, He rewards me, but He's so much more than that. He's everything to me. I have a relationship with Him. I love Him. My decisions are based on what brings glory to Him. I want to hand down a God like that to those who are following me. A God that is living and abiding and flowing through me. And so, dear people, what God are you handing down to the next generation? Is it the true God of the Bible? Or are you like Israel? You know, Israel acknowledged that God was their rock and their redeemer. We find that in verse 35 of Psalm 78. And yet they refused to walk in His ways. They provoked Him. They limited Him. Is your God limited? Why would you serve a God? Why would you give your life to a God that is limited? They limited God. They doubted God. They spoke against God. I don't know how you can expect someone to follow your faith when you're speaking against the God that you claim to believe in. But that's what they did. I don't know exactly how the true God will make Himself a reality in your life, but the God that you are following will make Himself known in your life. People will see it in the way you respond to difficulties. People will see the God that you are following and how you respond when life's going well. They'll see it in the way you treat other people. They'll see it in the way you view yourself. They'll see the God that you are following in the way you live your life. And as I pondered this, I got this picture of a man. And you can, maybe as I... As I Tell about this man that I see. Maybe you'll put a name to this man. I don't know. I think, I'm not necessarily speaking of one individual, but this is just the picture I get. You've probably met him. The man that always has a word of praise on his lips. When life's going good, praise the Lord. Everything that happens, praise the Lord. And, and then maybe something bad happens and, you know, you, you, you go to comfort him and he just says, God is good. God is good. Hard times come. Right away he says, let's pray about this. He'll put your arm around, his arm around your shoulder right there and say, let's just pray about this right here. You're having discussions and he says, what does the Bible say about this? Let's go to the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? Everything about his life points to God. And sometimes we're around people like that and we say, okay, they're going overboard. Like this is maybe a little too radical. But the reality is, those looking on And a person like that know that God is real to that person. God is real to that man. 
And so all the decisions in your life, from the clothes you wear, the decisions you make, the places you go, the the company you keep, the way you use your time, the way you invest your resources, everything you do in your life, pointing the next generation, showing the next generation a picture of the God that you are following. And so again, I ask the question, are you passing on a God that is worth following? Are you passing on a God that is worth giving your life for? I think that oftentimes, especially as conservative people, when we think about passing on the faith, our mind goes to our children accepting the the cultural practices that we value. Now to be clear, I value our cultural practices and I will be glad if my children embrace those things for themselves. But I also want to be clear that if I hand down a culture of conservatism that fails to flow out of a living, vibrant relationship with God, then I have given them nothing of value. Everything I do must flow out of my relationship with Almighty God. I trust this morning that it is each of your desire to be faithful to God in your generation. Is your faith contagious? Will the people that observe you look at your life and say, whatever he has, whatever she has, I want that for myself. I'm willing to give everything to have what they have. And may, by the grace of God, the generations to come, even the children which should be born, set their hope in God. Not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Lord bless you as you continue to faithfully follow after God, faithfully point those around you to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, and may God receive glory from your life. Shall we have a song? Oh, we